I am vengeance. I am the night. I am also a podcast. I am a podcast. 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 Oh! It's a show. It's a show. Audio only, though. What is it about? If you have time, I can tell you that it is a podcast about Batman, a Batman podcast. Uh, what did you want me to say in this part? It's a show. Yeah. Yeah. I am a podcast. Whoa. Hey. with fans and people. Welcome to Batman the Animated Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Michael, and you're listening to an interview variety show for your ears based on the legendary 1990s cartoon, Batman the Animated Series. Today's sponsor, Absolutely Perfect Rubber Mask Disguises. Looking for an easier way to Mission Impossible your way into a fancy gala? Let down by the stinky generic Halloween store mask? Sounds like you need an absolutely perfect rubber mask disguise. It's not only perfect, it's improbable and impossible to fashion in real life. Today's episode, The Cape and Cowl Conspiracy. A theft leads Batman to face off with Josiah Wormwood, the death trap specialist, who has been hired to use his trap-based talents to retrieve the most rare and precious valuable of all, the Dark Knight's cape and cowl. Original air date, October 14, 1992. Written by Elliot S. Magan, directed by Frank Parr, with music composed by Beth Ertz and Mark Koval. Animation by Dong Yang Animation Company. Starring Kevin Conroy as Batman, no surprise there. Bob Hastings as Commissioner Gordon, still no surprise. Bud Court as Wormwood. He is one of my favorite voice actors in the DCAU. I love him as the Toy Man. And John Reese davies ooh yeah, as Josek. Josek? I don't know. I don't remember. Gail Heidemann as Matron and Mark Taylor as MC Werther. Today's guest, Jason LeBlanc. So way back when this podcast regularly released episodes, the Patreon offered a reward tier where fans of the show could become guests. And this is one of those fantastic guests. So without further ado, let's get to that interview. Well, here we are. I am talking to Jason LeBlanc. It has been a long time coming, and that seems like my catchphrase these days when I'm talking to people on the podcast. But uh, you you have been supporting the Patreon for a very long mm-hmm. time, uh, and this you you were uh, initially a fan of the show, and and you know we got to finally we get to finally sit down and talk. Yeah, we do. It's it's very exciting. I've been listening to the show since I think episode like three or four. And it's just been a joy to listen to because I've been a fan of Batman the Animated Series since it first aired. So to have an opportunity to talk about the show, you know, on a podcast specifically about it is just I'm 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 really excited. We get to talk about the Cape and Cowl conspiracy. We do. Which you had chosen as the episode or it was a it was there were a number of choices, but this was one of them. Uh, and I kind of wanted to dive into 
What is it that drew you to this episode in particular? As you mentioned, there was uh, when we were planning this interview, there was a number of episodes that kind of were on a short list. So, um, but as things happened, certain episodes kind of already gotten covered and I wanted to make sure whatever we discussed, we weren't treading old ground. So um, I took out the, the box set of the DVDs that I have for Batman. and was like going through certain episodes and I came across this one and it'd been a while since I watched it. And it's, it's not the best episode of the series. It's definitely not Almost Got em. It's not Perchance to Dream or Heart of Ice. But it's definitely not I've Got Batman in My Basement or The Underdwellers. It's it's sort of like in that nice middle ground where it has some interesting things going on in it, but it also has moments or two that are kind of questionable or odd choices. So I just thought it would make an interesting episode to discuss. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's always one that it's like this and like the terrible trio and, and some of those episodes that are they just feel kind of like in between gangster and supervillain episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I think you you put it well in our, our messaging back and forth as calling it like an, a non-Riddler Riddler episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it does feel like an, an episode that should be about the Riddler. Um, because when you watch it, there's a lot of clues given out to Batman and Commissioner Gordon that are borderline riddles and even the design of Wormwood. I mean, we'll get into a lot of stuff during the episode, but I mean, the design of Wormwood differs very much from how he appeared in the comic because this is based on an an issue of detective comics. Um, so the design of him uh, is different from the comic In the comic, I believe he has like brown reddish hair he has a mustache he's wearing like a like an olive colored suit and in this one i mean you look at the design and he looks a lot like edward nigma just outside of his costume he really does i mean i had a visceral feeling of like a, a remembrance of being a kid watching this episode for the first time seeing the beginning of the episode with that clue and thinking oh great another riddler episode Mm -hmm oh, well, that character kind of looks like the Riddler, but he's not. Uh, so it, it is It is weird. It feels like a character that should be the Riddler based on everything else we've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, I did look up the, the comic as well, and I noticed that the writer of this episode also wrote the issue of the comic. Is it um, Elliot S. Magan? Yes, yeah, I think they did that fairly often on the series is sometimes they would get in touch with people who actually were comic book writers and bring them in to either adapt their stories or to come up with scripts that uh, were original to the series. Um, right, like Denny O'Neill and the Demon's Quest. Mm-hmm. And they even, even though I don't think he had written a Batman story previously, I mean, they were able to get Joe Lansdale as a writer on the on the show and he is... The history of writing for DC as well. Yeah, Mostly big Jonah Hex guy. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to see some of these names pop up. And I feel like they are maybe earlier in the production order than they are later in the series. Um, so I feel like they were sort of firing shots in the dark and seeing who's available. And it maybe was more comic book writer based in the beginning mm-hmm. uh, before they shifted to this is the team that we usually have to write these episodes because we found the tone of the show. Yeah, I... I 
it's it feels there are some episodes that um, feel a little bit off compared to as the show would progress. And I think some of that does apply to like some of the writers that they would bring in. Well, let's dive into the episode. Um, the Cape and Cowell Conspiracy, written by Elliot S. Megan. Magan. I don't know how to pronounce his name. I, I think it's Magan. I looked up on YouTube like an interview with him not too long ago. To, and I think it's Magan. Wonderful. I've been getting a lot of names wrong already <laughs> in, in freshly delivering episodes. Uh, so Elliot S. Magan, uh, and the director of it is Frank Parr, who is kind of a veteran director of, of Batman the Animated Series. Uh, and I think we kick off with like a very fun title card. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a, they, they would always make fantastic title cards for this show. And to see that outline of the cape and cowl, um, you know, in, in silhouette form. And it, it, it was, uh, I think it's a very effective um, title card. So I've said it before on the podcast, but I would pay good money for just an art book of the title cards from Batman, the animated series. It feels like an easy cash grab for DC or DC direct. Yeah. So it, it does because um, if, I, I I do own the art book that came out many years ago. I think Chip Kidd and Paul Dini worked on it together, and it feels very much like a coffee table art book about the series. Um, and it has a lot mm-hmm. of like character designs, and and uh, I think there is a section that does have the title cards, but not as big as you would like them to be. Yeah, there's like so a pullout kind of like- section I know in the middle. Yeah, and that's the thing, because I had that book for many years, and it wasn't until, like, just one or two years ago that I pulled it out and was just, like, coming through, and I was like, wait a minute, there's something wrong with this page. Let me, And it finally found, like, the section that pulls out, and you can see all the title cards. So I feel like there should be, like, similar to what you said, there should be a book about just the title cards or just even a book that goes over the history of the show, because um, recently on YouTube they uploaded – the and then this is through warner brothers a youtube channel they uploaded the heart of batman documentary uh that was on the blu-rays and i feel like there's there's just a a really good book about just the history of the show that they can put out Uh, i would love like an oral history style book uh those always read so quickly and are, are so fun and fascinating and if you did that with a little bit of art in between that'd be great yeah, they they did, uh, I think, sort of like what they did with Saturday Night Live. Didn't they put out one that was kind of like that, like an oral history of like the production of Saturday Night Live? Right, yeah. On, I know there's like an online kind of oral history. I'd love, I'd love a fat Saturday Night Live-sized book. <laughs> but just Batman. Just Batman, yeah. Uh, I mean, I'd take DC Animated Universe in general, but I feel like there's enough with just Batman. Mm-hmm. Uh, but getting back to the Cape and Cowl Conspiracy... We start at a mini golf course, which I feel like is uh, this episode. What it does have going for it is great set pieces. Mm -hmm. A lot of really fun locations. Yeah. And it's it's kind of a hallmark of the show that they would constantly use settings that were primarily places of joy and, and turn them into like nightmarish settings like, you know, museums amusement parks, drive-in theaters, apparently a mini golf course. It can also be made super creepy thanks to their, uh, their art team. So, so, but yeah, it's a, it's a nice way to kick off the episode. 
Yeah. And I mean, we start with this guy who's walking up. He's gotten this kind of like classic ransom looking cutout letter leading him there. He's got some bearer bonds that he's supposed to make as like a donation, uh, which the fact that bearer bonds are even mentioned in a kid's show, it's it's another one of those like, sure, Batman the Animated Series is, is bringing that up. I'm sure it flew over my head uh, as a kid. Yeah, you don't really hear bearer bonds get brought up too often in pop culture. Maybe like this and Die Hard are the only times I can think of it. Yeah. Thanks, DC, for educating kids about finance. Yeah, that's what I rushed to look up. It wasn't which action figures were coming out. It was uh, on bearer bonds and finance. Um, but we start with this this guy who basically, we immediately get revealed uh, Wormwood, who looks kind of like Edward Nigma, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in his, his little control tower, part of the mini golf course. Um, and he traps this guy in a quicksand trap unless he hands over the money. One of my favorite things about this guy is, other than being a knockoff Riddler, uh, he's voiced by Bud Court in the animated series. And I think my favorite Superman villain in the DC animated universe is the Toy Man. I think I love this creepy take, that porcelain mask wearing version of the character. And Bud Court's voice is so specific and good that it's just fun to hear him in this, too. I think that was also one of the reasons I ended up picking this episode to talk about because he just adds this smarmy, um, creepy vibe to the character that maybe isn't there on paper. Um, and he's he has this very unique voice. I mean, you've got voiceover actors that fall into like two different categories, I feel. But you've got like the type that are like Phil Lamar and Maurice LaMarche and Greg Delisle who can do like a bazillion different voices. And it's, but then, then you get into this like actors kind of like Bud Court or Patrick Warburton where maybe they can't do that, but their voice is just so unique and specific that if it's cast the right way, it's just perfect. Yeah, I agree. I think that's exactly it. Uh, they're just hired for, their voice and that they're also a good actor on top of that. But uh, they just bring something, you know, that's, that's not teachable. Uh, It's just part of their DNA. And, and, you know, it's, it's just part of that vocal imprint. So I love him. He's so smarmy. You're right. (laughs) And then we get to Gordon who, you know, is, is share. Basically we get the exposition dump about this character, you know, after this first set piece, which I wrote down the dialogue here because It it was wild how quickly they explain who this character is as if you're supposed to know him. And I believe the the dialogue is, you know who that sounds like, don't you? Wormwood, the interrogator, the guy who specializes in death traps to pry info from his victims. Like this is a classic villain that they've faced many times. Yeah, and also calling him the interrogator once, but he's just called Wormwood the rest of the episode, Mm -hmm. which is also a great name just to call him Wormwood. But... uh, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it, it was a, a weird introduction as if we knew who he was all along. We never really got an origin. and Yeah, and I, I think it kind of works in this context because it's nice to have a villain that you can just hate and you don't have to have, like, I mean, I, I admire the fact that the show as it went on, it would take these sort of C-list, B-list characters and give them very empathetic backstories, like, uh, Mr. Freeze, Two-Face, Mad Hatter. Um, but then you would get later into the episode where there's that conflict between Batman and 
the villain and you had this mixed emotions because you knew that they were doing wrong and but you felt sorry for them with wormwood it's there's nothing there he's just kind of a blank slate and you just know that from what you've been told and what you've seen that you know, he's just a terrible human being and um and you don't really have that conflict of sympathy you can just enjoy batman kind of trying to go after this guy yeah I mean, there are opportunists and shitheads in the world who, <laughs> you know, we, we don't necessarily need to sympathize or empathize with. And, and also it is just kind of like a fun, straightforward. This is an episode about all the fun set pieces more than it is about the emotional thrust of this villain, uh, which is which is cool, too. Um, and so we get the introduction to the Baron, uh, voiced by John Rhys-Davies, one of my fave actors on or off cartoon screen. Uh, you know, I love him in Indiana Jones. I love him in Lord of the Rings. He's great. Um, and he, he is at a function and Batman publicly kidnaps him because he's going to interrogate him about his connections to Wormwood. But this was such a wild choice. I forgot that he did this in front of an entire gala of people. Yeah, it's it's an odd moment in the episode because he's about to start speaking in front of all these people for this charity event. Batman swings down, grabs him. They fly through a cake. He, you know, they, they then proceed to like head out through the balcony. And as this is happening, the, the shot, it kind of pans over the crowd. And at first they're kind of shocked and it gets further along in the shot and then you see people are laughing and it's just such an odd moment because you didn't realize the the woman who is hosting this event has to get up in front of all those people and eventually tell them you know that wasn't a bit you know the person who was supposed to speak in front of us he just was abducted by batman I, I don't know what the point of batman doing it in public was at first i was like oh maybe he's doing this because this guy values his public image and so he's doing it in front of people so he can get some information but it never seemed like it was part of uh it didn't felt feel like a thought out version of things it felt like batman impulsively was like this is where he is i'm doing it now and it felt kind of out of character for the Batman that we know in the rest of the animated series who does his best to stealthily investigate and tail people and interrogate them in much, much more hidden ways. Yeah, I could picture a version of this where maybe um, the Baron does his presentation and he's leaving the charity event and that's when Batman grabs him. Yeah. They decided to go for this comedic bit with him instead, which just leads to more like confusion when you see how the audience reacts so yeah it feels a little tonally off but it was pretty fun to watch regardless uh mm -hmm. and i did like uh, <laughs> his line how dare you manhandle me <laughs> doing his best is it sounds like it's vaguely russian yeah i mean i know that he was supposed to be eastern european that was the general region he was from so yeah it just sounded like a a broad kind of characterization of russian ish um but he's hung by his suspenders, which are very strong suspenders, uh, mm -hmm. on a billboard as Batman interrogates him and ultimately suggests that he takes a vacation for his health far from Gotham, which is the plant to, you know, the payoff that we get later about Batman impersonating him, which is he's driving this guy away purposely so he can kind of replace him and uh, start to manipulate Wormwood in secret himself. 
dressed mm. as the Baron, which I love. <laughs> it's, it's so goofy for this Batman. Yeah, and Batman apparently is very talented. I had no idea that he could disguise himself, so he becomes shorter and fatter. Yeah, incredible. Incredible work. I'm wondering if he got some help from Alfred there. I don't know. Took some lessons from Alfred from his acting days. <laughs> yeah. At the West End, Alfred studied for years, and he passed along his broad characterization of Eastern Europeans. <laughs> um, but uh, ultimately, we cut to Wormwood meeting up with the Baron, who I think at this point is supposed to be Batman in disguise, uh, manipulating things. Yeah, I think so, because there's a bit at the end um, of the episode where it's implied that ever since Wormwood... Um, went to see the Baron in that um, that room that he's in that, that's always been Batman. Yeah, which makes sense, although it's kind of funny that the cape and cowl conspiracy is set up by Batman. It's Batman driving somebody to steal his own cape and cowl. I mean, there have been a lot of movies and TV shows over the years that are all about cons. So, I mean, there could have probably been a better way of Batman handling this uh, situation rather than going to this elaborate ruse, like the disguise that he decides to put on. Um, But then again, we wouldn't have an episode that went 22 minutes. Yeah, and I mean, it was fun. Uh, It feels very like Tom Cruise Mission Impossible style disguising himself. (laughs) Like it's just like a rubber mask that somehow magically looks good. Um, But basically, uh, fake Baron, a.k.a. Batman, is hiring Wormwood to steal Batman's cape and cowl and he hands him a headshot (laughs) like it's this beautifully rendered like it looks like production key art for Batman the animated series and I'm like when did Batman pose for this for a guy who nobody (laughs) ever gets to see because he's in the shadows so much they sure got a great picture of him and like Wormwood would need that information like oh you you have no idea who's gonna be here it's like oh so this is what it looks like this is what this guy looks like (laughs) who everybody knows about so the con is on, and we head to the roof. And we this is the first, the introduction of the bat signal in the animated series, which I had completely forgotten about. Yeah, I, I had no idea that this was like the key episode where that piece of bat lore is introduced. Um, and uh, I kind of like the way that it is introduced because it's it's implied that Gordon is choosing to go in this direction. Like he might get some brushback from... Um, the mayor or other people in the department, but he wants to have this as a way of contacting Batman, um, which works better than in other versions I've seen. Cause I don't know if you remember in like the Tim Burton movie at towards the end of the film, um, after everything that's happened with Batman, and the Joker, and there's a, a press conference at the end where um, commissioner Gordon is kind of like reads um, a letter that the Batman has sent. And he says, um, if you're ever in trouble again, you can just contact me. And they, they're all like, well, how are you going to contact him? Well, he gave us a signal. And it's like, here's a giant bat signal that we, you can use. But I mean, the implication is that, you know, Batman is thinking, you know, in case there's ever a problem and you guys are really, really incompetent, I want you to take this giant flashlight with my logo on it 
and shine it up in the sky to indicate that you guys are way over your heads. It definitely plays better here. I, I feel like it's it's nice to see that it's driven by Gordon and he's kind of risking his job a little bit uh, because he believes in their partnership. And I feel like it mm -hmm. makes it more of a personal relationship thing and just it's just more interesting. Yeah, it, it does work better in the animated version this way. Uh, and, and I like the shot of it. We get a close-up of the bat signal, and I'm like, this is weird. Why are we seeing this so much? And then we hear that line, got a new toy, I see. Oh, okay, this is the first time. And then, you know, he gets another clue. He reads it to Gordon, and then he, he's like, do you know what that means? I'm messing up what the actual line is, but Batman just leaves <laughs> without telling Gordon what it is like a dick. And I think it's just supposed to be a running joke. Uh, but it's like, you know, why did you come to the roof just to, I guess, investigate the bat signal? But you're going to you're just going to leave this guy, the one guy who believes in you, <laughs> who could help you find this guy. Yeah. The, the relationship between Gordon and Batman is always kind of prickly because you get the sense that they're very good friends in some episodes and other episodes. It's just like Batman is like, you guys are over your head. <laughs> yeah. And this is the beginning of their friendship. And I mean, I do like the trope. It's now a trope because Batman is, you know, over 80 years old. Uh, but the fact that, you know, we can make jokes about predicting that Batman will not say anything and disappear into the night, leaving everybody wondering what's going on is, is a testament to, I guess, that just being kind of built into the character at this point. Yeah, it's it's it is. It's it's like one of those things you kind of expect now in a Batman story. You know, you kind of expect that to happen at some point in Batman's story. You obviously expect a point when he's going to like fly down from a tall building holding on to a grappling hook and just, you know, wailing into criminals or he'll be there'll be that moment in uh, when he's alone in the Batcave and maybe Alfred is coming by to console him. Um, so yeah, I mean, when you've got a character that's been around for so long and has been told in so many different ways, at a certain point, you're going to hit some of those, you know, expected moments. Yeah. And then we head to the next set piece, Train Town, which is <laughs> so fun. We get a, an elaborate mini golf course. We get Train Town. We get a wax museum later. I mean, it's truly some of the most fun locations for a Batman episode. And Train Town, I don't know about where you're from or... For me, in uh, Griffith Park here in Los Angeles, there's a place called Travel Town that has a bunch of old trains uh, that, you know, if you're a kid, you, I mean, or an adult, I guess, <laughs> you can kind of climb on and go inside and stuff. And I was like, oh, I wonder if this was a nod to that specifically or how many of these kinds of, you know, converted train depots exist elsewhere where people just can run around and play. Uh, there, I live in Massachusetts and I can verify that there are quite a few of these in the new england area so nice. it's not just in california that's cool um well we get train town where we, we we have the the first trap set for batman uh which is trapping him on a train and having a little panel slide open to drop his cape and cowl otherwise a damsel in distress tied to the tracks uh you know old school uh serial and, and serialized cartoon style uh, will will perish. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I have to give it up for Wormwood. He appreciates the classics. He's got quicksand. <laughs> he's got a damsel in distress on some train tracks. Um, it's like I'm. I was kind of disappointed that at no point during the episode it wasn't like somebody was tied up and had like a 
pendulum swinging back and forth, you know, as a possible death trap. <laughs> yeah, I would love to see that. You know, maybe we can give Wormwood the character a call and let him know, you know, give him some feedback <laughs> uh, or just email Bud Court. Uh, but yeah, it turns out this woman is a hologram. Uh, so Batman survives and uh, we move on to the Wax Museum. Lots of metal bars and gates that close and shut Batman in. Uh, you know, really suspends your disbelief and wondering how much Wormwood's able to alter these public spaces. But it's a Batman the Animated Series episode. Crazier stuff has happened. <laughs> yeah, it has. Uh, what did you think of the, the Wax Museum itself? Like the figures I, they had on display. Nothing really popped out other than there was one kind of bust in a corner that looked like it, it could have been a caricature of somebody. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, is this a reference to a comic book artist or a Batman person? But I, I don't know. Did you did you have any info on it or did you see anything? Well, as I was, I, I watched this episode a couple of times before we were going to sit down for the interview. So I, I paused the DVD to kind of like try and get an idea of like who some of these could have been. So at one point uh, when he first walks in and there's there the uh, wax figures are lined up on either side. There's one that's holding a baseball bat and a uh, a ball. So I'm assuming that was Babe Ruth since he's mm-hmm. referenced in the the rhyme. Um, there was a woman that's tied up uh, and looks like it might be Joan of Arc. Um, there's Quasimodo is one of them. Mm-hmm. I think I Mons. caught him. Yeah, Frankenstein. There's somebody with a knife, I'm assuming, probably might have been like Jack the Ripper. So it's, um, they're very brief, but um, I like that they actually tried to make them resemble something recognizable rather than just being like vague um, wax figures that you couldn't really tell was who. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I'm always in awe, you know, watching this show in particular to see the intricacies of the background design and the things that are just there to fill things out. I mean, in all animation, background artists are, are kind of unsung heroes, uh, mm. and especially on shows where the art and the style is so beautiful and evocative. So it's just fun to catch all those little details. And we get Batman locked in the Delarousse Wax Museum, uh, which, you know, this is where he gives up his cape and cowl, although... He has a smaller mask underneath, uh, does. which resembles a little bit like a Zorro mask. Uh huh. I really, I thought he looked cool. Yeah, it, it was like a nice little choice there, the second mask. Um, and just the sequence of him being trapped in that room with the wax melting and him trying various ways to get out and kind of keep running into problems with that escape. Um, I think my favorite moment in this entire episode is during that sequence where he's figuring out different ways to get out of the room. Um, he comes across the, um, uh, metal skeleton for one of the wax figures, kind of like chucks it at the light, almost like it's uh, a javelin, breaks it. And then you think, okay, he's, he's kind of saved himself. And then all of a sudden, like the gas starts coming in. <laughs> and I love the fact, actually, that was probably the, the reason why I picked this episode. The fact that Wormwood puts a death trap within another death trap. I mean, that's some um, high class villainy right there. Oh yeah. Trap on a trap. He's not skimping. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I love it. I love that we just get 
traps on top of traps. What a what a guy. Uh, the Riddler wouldn't do that. <laughs> Apologies to Edward Nigma if you're listening. Um, Sorry, Eddie. What are you going to do? But uh, we speak the truth. So we finally get the reveal after this that, you know, because Wormwood basically does accept, okay, well, all I wanted was, was the cape and cowl. You can do it however you choose, even if you kind of got out without revealing your identity. Um, and so we get the reveal in the next scene that Batman has been dressed as Baron and impersonating him all along. Whoa. <laughs> Uh, I, I watched this show when it first aired, and um, I, when that episode um, did eventually get to that point, I was generally surprised. So I, it's and it still holds up. It's a nice reveal. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's uh, it's something we see Batman do in the Laughing Fish, also. <laughs> you know, so it's it's not the only time it's happened. He does he does kind of play dress up. Yeah. Killer Croc, yeah. He, he, I mean, he, he's he's a he's a master impressionist. He does it in the ventriloquist episode. He's able to throw his voice. What he learned some stuff from Zatara, the magician. Like they always have, you know, kind of justification. So I'll buy that he can Mission Impossible this impersonation as well. Um, he's Batman. And, he can do anything. Yeah, pretty much. And we, you know, end up with the downfall of Wormwood. He goes to jail, and we have this final kind of ironic torturous moment which i feel like batman in these earlier episodes used to do more he would like drop something off for the villains that made them feel bad and in this one it was delivering you know a a a cowl through gordon yeah it's uh it's a nice closer for the episode i mean batman might have been stuck underneath the giant lamp but it was really wormwood who got burned (laughs) um yeah it's uh it's and also it's he puts his like little insignia at the bottom of the letter when it when he delivers the package to to Wormwood. Yeah, when Wormwood sells it later, that's going to be the marker of authenticity when they check it on eBay or something. <laughs> I have to ask, um, what did you think of the fight between Batman and Wormwood towards the end? It, nothing popped out to me. Did you have any thoughts on it? Well, it's because I hadn't seen this episode in quite a while. I completely forgot that that was even in there. I thought, like, from my memory, I thought what happens is, like, you know, Wormwood drops off the cape and cowl to the Baron. Um, Batman eventually reveals himself. And then he just, the police come in and take him. But then I completely forgot that there was this big fight sequence between Wormwood and Batman towards the end. Um, and I, my favorite bit in that entire thing is towards the end where they're fighting using the barbells. Uh, it kind of gave off a bit of a, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Streets of Fire. No, I haven't. Okay, well, you're in for a treat. That's um, It's a movie from Walter Hill. He directed uh, 48 Hours, and he directed The Warriors, and he also directed Streets of Fire, which is this rock and roll action film that also has kind of, um, you know how in Batman you can never quite place what time the story is taking place? Uh, Streets of Fire is kind of set in a world similar to that where everything has this vaguely 50s vibe, but not quite. Um, And in that movie, there's a big action sequence towards the end where it's um, Michael Pere and William Dafoe fight each other using sledgehammers. That sounds awesome. (laughs) 
<laughs> it is. So it's just like when they were using, it's like, I mean, we've all seen, you know, movies where people duel and they use swords. Uh, I mean, I, I haven't seen any time when people use barbells as weapons. So, I mean, I thought that was a nice touch. Yeah, it's a fun specific for sure. And I also forgot that there was a fight after the reveal. I was like, oh, this episode ends in the reveal and it's quickly re- resolved. But the fact that they fight a little bit uh, was a surprise when I rewatched it for sure. Uh, well, any final thoughts on the episode itself? You know, it's it's a pretty solid episode. I mean, it has some questionable moments. It has um, things that could have probably been fixed better, but it's still a very entertaining episode, much like the series was. I mean, it's uh, it holds up incredibly well all these years later, rewatching uh, some of these episodes on DVD. Um, and uh, it's great that, you know, you have this podcast where fans can kind of like revisit some of these episodes. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for talking about it. Uh, it, it was a real treat. Now, uh, I wanted to quickly touch upon uh, a little bit of what, what you do and, and, you know, kind of the group that you're a part of, if you wanted to talk a little bit about it. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I'm the organizer of the Boston Horses Society. So what that is, is we've been around for almost five years, um, and it's on both the website Meetup, and it's also on Facebook. And it's kind of a way of bringing people together in the New England area who love scary entertainment. So um, we'll get together and go to a movie, and then afterwards talk about it, or a convention, or a book signing, just... um, anything that kind of appeals to people that love scary entertainment. Um, And I've just been very blessed to, you know, be running the group because I've made a lot of great friends through it. And um, it's just, uh, it's, it's fun to kind of hang out with other people that uh, are really into like horror movies. So. Yeah. Well, and you're in a good, you're in a good state for that. Uh, I know that, I was in Salem for a wedding right around oh. Halloween, and what a treat that was. It's already a town that kind of uh, is year-round celebrating witches and stuff, but they go all in on the spooky uh, around that time. And it was I, I was so bummed because it was like the week before everything really started, and I was like, no, <laughs> I want to see this part of you know the United States also like visually look so much cooler than i'd say where i'm from <laughs> you know when it comes to autumn and, and all those fall colors and stuff so that's a, that's great that you had a chance to visit salem i'm actually um not too far from there myself so I've, i go up there from time to time for events um well when, when we could do events now we're kind of like doing stuff online at the moment but uh eventually things will return to normal eventually yeah and and where can people find info about this you said facebook and meetup and uh yeah, so we uh, it's pretty easy to find us. If you just go onto Google and type in Boston Horror Society, you'll be able to find the links to both Meetup and to Facebook. Uh, I'm on Twitter um, on at Beantown Horrors. Um, that's my handle. And I don't post very much on Twitter, but I'm there if anybody wants to follow me. Um, and I believe before we wrap, I think we should probably talk about somebody um that has directed a number of horror films in the past and actually directed a couple of batman movies yeah i mean the day we're recording this uh news kind of broke that joel schumacher has died which is 
which is a real bummer because um, he was an influential part of my experience of Batman. And I know he got a lot of shit from the, the kind of like Batman nerd community. Uh, and, and even myself, like I feel like in college I was very like anti Schumacher just cause it was cool to like, you know, Nolan stuff as it was coming out. But I grew mm-hmm. up on, you know, the Burton movies, but I, I really loved Batman forever. I think it's genuinely a fun movie. It feels like a kind of, 90s version of the Adam West show in the best way. Um, and he also, yeah, he did Lost Boys, which is incredible. Yeah, Lost Boys, <laughs> Flatliners. Uh-huh. Uh, he's, he's, yeah, it's, he, directed, he directed Falling Down, uh, St. Elmo's Fire. Um, I think he got, like you said, he got really um, ripped apart by the comic book community. Um, and I'll be bluntly honest i mean i saw batman forever i thought it was a decent film not my favorite batman movie and uh, when i heard reviews for batman and robin i stayed away um but um late years later i was reading interviews with him and he kind of went into some detail and he was very candid about his experiences making those batman movies and just explaining some of the notes that he would get from the studios, some of the notes he would get from companies that were tying in their products to those movies, how he had to deal with certain actors like Val Kilmer and Tommy Lee Jones that weren't exactly on the same page with him. So he um, he probably didn't get the best hand dealt to him when he was making those films, but definitely a very talented filmmaker and um he will be missed yeah i agree uh and i I think he you know his his batman films deserve a a rewatch uh even if even if you're not the biggest fans of that style of batman i think you visually uh they're they're beautiful and insane (laughs) you know like they are their own style uh and batman and robin is one that again i also am not a huge fan of the film Uh, i like a lot of schumacher's other films non-batman stuff but i think visually it's so fun to look at it's uh it's a treat (laughs) yeah and i think that's the testament to batman is that you can do batman in so many different ways i mean yes you have the christopher nolan films and you have the tim burton films you have the animated series you know we have Joel Schumacher's version of the character. We're going to eventually be getting a new Batman movie in the near future with Robert Pattinson. Um, it's it's like you can you know there's there's room for like the dark gritty character, and there's also room for the lighthearted pop culture you know jokey version of the character too, and they both can exist. Totally, totally, totally. Mm. Well spoken. Um, <laughs> Well, on that note, I think uh, we did it. Thanks so much for doing the podcast, Jason. Oh, well, thank you so much, Justin. Again, this is a thrill to finally be uh, talking with you. And, um, you know, stay safe. Yes, likewise. And that was Jason LeBlanc. Thank you so much for listening. If you guys like the show, please rate and subscribe on Apple and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at BTAS Podcast and me at Hey Justin. Batman the Animated Podcast is hosted and produced by me, Justin Michael. Tom Smith created the show logo, and Casey Trela helped produce the theme song. Brian Holmes edited this episode, and Harry Chaskin is the booming voice of the podcast. Thanks again to my guest and Patreon contributor, Jason LeBlanc. And of course, 
Thank you to Tori Malatia, who I unassumingly tried to shake hands with, and of course, in this global pandemic, shouted, How dare you manhandle me? Tori, you are absolutely right. I, I don't know, I just kind of spaced out. You know, I miss shaking hands, man, because... If over 75 episodes have taught me one thing, it's that Tori Malatia and Justin Michael are very real friends who need to shake hands. And, and that, that, my friends, is a flash fact. Okay, well, till next episode, Bye bye